Many years have passed since a fellowship of light battled the shadow creature at the Grey Haven. Now the heroes find themselves in an unknown land where they discover a man in black is wreaking havoc. Undeath follows him wherever he goes, and long-forgotten legends rise again having been possessed by his evil. Join the players of this Dungeons & Dragons campaign as they attempt to stop the man in black as he collects artifacts both on and off the Lonely Isle. Welcome to Tolerasia in part two of the Inglorian Bastards trilogy, Rise of the Mormon. So I'm going to do my little showman thing now, okay? So just bear okay. with me and don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, welcome everybody to episode 79 of the Inglorian Bastards campaign. Uh, with me tonight, I'm very honored to have uh, another Tolkien expert, another local Boston Tolkien expert for that matter. Um, so with me tonight, I have Michael Drought, who is the chair of the Department of English at Wheaton College, among other things. He is also the author of um, at least 13 courses in the Modern Scholars series. Um, he's the editor of many books uh, and um, also a, a lecturer at Signum University. Um, so uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my, my pleasure, my pleasure. So um, I'd like to start off tonight right away, just getting into the meat of it. Um, and And you and I had talked sort of electronically about this, but um, you know, if, if you do your research and you're and you're and you're really a, a Tolkien enthusiast, you in doing the research you find that a lot of Tolkien scholars have this. Um, it's like it's like their entry point to Tolkien for their students or, or for for the people that follow them are to explain how to read Tolkien. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about. Why did, why does everyone seem to to need to to clarify like how how you read Tolkien? how to how to read one of the most popular books in the entire twentieth century? Yeah, um, I think the reason is that all of us who who work in Tolkien in one way or the other are are, are just very aware that that he's different than the stuff that we were trained to read and trained to analyze in in undergrad and grad school. Um, that there's something different about it, and that if you try to read it as a realistic novel or less something like Moby Dick or you know Shakespeare or, or anything like that, you read it wrong. Like you, you're looking for the wrong things. It's like arguing about you know silly things that would be plot holes or you know well how come when Frodo has the ring on he's not blind since the light would be passing right through his <laughs> retina and you know like kind of like Sheldon. Big Bang Theory type questions. Yeah. Um, so there's that part of it, but and and on the other side, it's like the literary um, scholarship piece. It, it, you're, you're we who love Tolkien, we get it. Like you know, you get it intuitively. Uh, what the way the book works, the way the the story works. Um, you know, whether it's the magic system in the world or the 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 bigger point about whose point of view you're getting for the story and so forth. But but I think everybody feels like you've got to explain that to your colleagues because huh. of partly you know it's it's this defensiveness that I, I've been arguing and in fact in my book that I'm still not finished with um, <laughs> have a big piece on like basically saying stop already like okay we're now far enough along that we no longer have to be defensive about Tolkien um, you know there's there's a there, there's enough like critical scholarly infrastructure there's enough work that's been done on it I think it's become clear now that 
this is in fact one of the most culturally influential books of the 20th century. And so, like, stop apologizing and just get going. But it's very tempting, too, because you, especially when you're dealing with, like, mainstream critics, they just say such stupid things that it's it's just so tempting to, to catch them in their own contradictions. That's Shippy's favorite. Find something that a critic says, all great works of art do this, and then you show exactly how Tolkien did that, and then you find the same critic saying, Tolkien's not good. Yeah, right. So... And so, uh, you know, do, do you think that the, these critics that, that you mentioned uh, are are used to critiquing something like Tolkien? I mean, is there anything like Tolkien in, in contemporary literature? Well, th- there is. There is now, or there there are things that that given that enough time now, you can start to see the connections that maybe you, you couldn't see before, right? You started to think it, it seemed like that Tolkien was was one of its own, uh, like, a you know, it's a, t- a totally new thing. Uh, so you didn't necessarily put him with all his um, his influences, his sources, the things that he pulled together. Right. And you can see him also as like kind of a node in a network where all the, the imitations of him and the, the development of the field of fantasy. And then you can put it in this like l- larger context, you know, the, there's those, the, the, for example, the uh, Latin American, primarily Latin American uh, writers who wrote in that, in the, in the field of like magical realism, it was called. And there's some, like, so um, uh, Borges uh, and um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and in, in England, Angela Carter, like there, there's other, and they, they weren't very, they, there's a lot of things about those that are really different from Tolkien. Mm-hmm. But kind of in the fullness of time, you can, you can see that there was sort of something going on in the 20th century about fantasy, about m- magic, about re-envisioning and, and redeveloping these deep cultural traditions. Um, and that different writers handled it different ways. So in some ways then Tolkien becomes not as like weird that mm-hmm. like literary scholars would say, well, come on, it's got elves. You can't have elves yeah. in a shirt book. Um, and, and at the same time, you can sort of see what his achievement was. Tolkien like pulled together. It wasn't so much that he invented, I mean, he invented lots of new things within his work, but he's really just, he's pulling together like the imagined manuscript tradition and the, the map of place that doesn't exist tradition and invented language tradition and the, the sort of pseudo medieval world tradition. Now, and once he does that, right, that's like the stable core of all fantasy mm-hmm. after that. But none of those things came out of nowhere. Even the invented languages, there were there were precedents and other things. His, his part of his genius, and he had his genius worked in a lot of different ways, was to like assemble the prototype fantasy novel that then everyone else says, "Oh, now I know how to do this." But the weird thing is, none of them surpassed him. Even though you know he, you'd think that someone would come along. Like, so let's just say, like for the sake of argument, it's not entirely true, but it's close enough that um, Virginia Woolf invents stream of consciousness, mm-hmm. right? But then I think most people would say James Joyce perfected it. The thing is, like, Tolkien invented the massive, epic, imagined world fantasy novel with maps and languages and um, appendices and that, that kind of, you know, compendious world. But you can't say anyone else, like, did it better. I, I would say uh, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> but it's, it, I mean, there are there are things that peek through. I, I, I think Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea, certainly not, like, developed to the extent of Middle Earth, but it has its own integrity. I know Shippy thinks, um, I think it's Michael Swanwick, that he thinks um, has done a, a great job there. And I think that there's some, some more of the recent fantasy 
because of the invention of urban fantasy. Oh, yeah. It let people get out from under Tolkien's shadow enough to stop either imitating or eating and reacting against the Lord of the Rings and just write their own stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, that's why I would say Lainey Taylor's uh, Daughter of Smoke and Bone trilogy is one of the best pieces of fantasy I've read in 15 years. And it, it's really outside the shadow of Tolkien. Well, I'll try to, uh, I'll do my best to, to take some of the authors that you mentioned and put them in the description uh, of this episode so people can find them if they want. Um, if, if I could, um, I, I remember listening to, there, there was a, people can find this online, there was a, a, a lecture, or, or I think you were a guest lecture at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, there's a video out uh, uh, sort of on the interwebs. Uh, of, of, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that you said, and the topic of this was, was sort of, uh, you talked about a lot of things, but the topic was, uh, you know, how, how do you read Tolkien? And, and you, you said at one point, um, you, you read Tolkien as a philologist would read uh, something. And, and it, it's, it's funny uh, that you say that because the, the most recent interview that we had here was with uh, James Tauber, who um, I, I referred to as the digital philologist. Um, and, and he said, he actually quoted Roman Jacobson, uh, who, who, who said, uh, uh, what is philology? It is the art of reading slowly. <laughs> so <laughs> I like that a lot. That's a great quote. Um, so, so is that how you read Tolkien? Uh, very, very slowly? <laughs> um, no, I read Tolkien very, very many times. Um, I, would say, I think I lost count, but I, at, at one point I had read The Lord of the Rings 42 times because wow. I read it every year. Um, you know, when I was, I don't know, when we first read, first read it, it was eight years old, maybe, or something. My dad read it out loud to me. And then as soon as we got to the end, we would start reading it again. And uh, and I just read it every year for the longest time, and so you pick up more and more stuff. So that, that's I guess it's like you know reading it fast many times is maybe the same as reading it slowly once. Um, <laughs> Why? Well, it's funny. I'm I'm reading it to my I'm reading The Hobbit to my daughter now, um, who who's eight years old, and um, just the amount of things that I'm picking it picking up, reading it out loud, and, and talking with her about it is is pretty pretty amazing. But let, let's um let me let me ask you about this. So so I found a paper. Um, online, a document that you had written with um, probably some of your students. Uh, it was called Tolkien's Creation of the Impression of Depth. You had you had several categories that you talked about. Um, it, you know, and the first thing that you talked about um, to, that that created this impression of depth in his lore and his mythology was just the was the sheer size uh, and the intricate detail of, of the world that he created. Um, is that something that you could you could talk a little bit about? Yeah. So, and this is actually one of my my critiques of the Peter Jackson films, as as beautiful as they are, uh, is that that Middle Earth is too small in them. Yeah. You know that the the elves uh, decide to go to Helm's Deep. Bang, they're there. <laughs> like later that night. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas Tolkien really does the hard work, and if you've ever done, you know. Um, a, 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 like a, a big Dungeons and Dragons campaign or tried to write a fantasy novel, like just dealing with the size of things without making it boring. Right. Because really a lot of it would then be, and then they walk for four weeks, Yep. you know, and you have to do, and they, and it doesn't, it's not like that. Right. Like, I mean, some of it's just Tolkien being really smart. Like I'll put him in boats on the river. You know, you can cover a lot of ground that way. Right. Um, but it's, it, but it's both the size and at the same time, the incredible detail, whether it's the naming or, I, I mean, so when you read Tolkien, when you read Lord of the Rings out loud, you realize like just 
how much of the book is devoted to just describing landscape. They make that the, the world is rendered, you know, down to the littlest thing, to the line of beans on poles outside Tom Bombadil's house. And I think that, that what that, you know, without being, without being too, you know, using this in a shallow way, but the fractal dimension of the, the work that the, the you can zoom in as much as you want and there's there's everything there you can zoom back out to the biggest you know view and everywhere in between and i think that helps give the impression that it's a real place and and do you i mean do you think some of this has to do with i remember reading in your article like the, is the way he wrote things right over the course of his whole life and he had like uh, you know one of my favorite characters was turin um and and i think i read in your article that there were like something like 12 different versions of of the turin turinbar story um is does that, does that contribute to the to the size uh, to the size of the world in some way? It's I think so because I think that's how he started to fill in all the, the corners and, and and it's it's also it creates um, so last summer I had a, a student come all the way to Wheaton from China to study Tolkien and, and digital stuff and we worked on the the chapter Strider in the Lord of the Rings yeah. and 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 that's the most revised part of the entire Lord of the Rings. And it had to keep getting revised because Tolkien came up with different reasons for why Gandalf was late and then different reasons for like the geopolitics. And then it was just the Black Riders and now there's Saruman and now there's some other piece. And he, and he kept having to change and it, and it forced him to change everything. Like the, the changes, what, what the student, uh, uh, Peijen, uh, uh, what she showed was that the, the, the changes sort of cascaded down when you change something about the plot, it, it forced changes in the character. And then if you change things about the character, it forced changes in the plot. And I think that that's the same sort of thing that Tolkien was was getting at with all those Turin revisions. Like, he had this idea of this story, but he didn't know, you know, do I tell it in this very mythological, pulled back, you know, there's almost no dialogue. It's it's And, and when people talk, they give formal speeches, right? Or is it more zoomed in, like, the later, like as he learned to write, you know, in, as he as he wrote the the Lord of the Rings, or should it be even more spare in these sort of annals? And in this year, this happened, mm-hmm. and this year that happened, or in poetry, you know, he wrote a big chunk of the Turin story in alliterative long lines, and how should the poetry, you know, influence this? One of the things we were always surprised by is the Turin story reads like it was influenced by poetry, mm-hmm. right? It has lines like Turin stood stock still and silent looking at that dreadful death, except that it turns out the most poetic sounding lines of the prose are often not from the poetry. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like he, at, every time he rewrote it, he kept bits of the old piece. He created new bits. Sometimes he created those new bits, I think just from memory of the old piece rather than actually having it in front of him. And, and in, in doing that, it, it gets the texture of something that was put together over hundreds of years by many bards and chroniclers and writers and storytellers. But it's all from the mind of, of J.R.R. Tolkien. And that's just an amazing trick. Like People try to, to make their work seem like that they're traditional or, or oral or long lost or reconstructed. He succeeded so much so that it's actually subtle. And I mean, we were using, you know, digital philology techniques, computer techniques to try to substantiate the feeling that we get when you read the, the Turin story, say, in the published Silmarillion or the Narn in the Unfinished Tales. 
that there's multiple authors there. And I know, mm. you know, people say, well, Dad, the other one's Christopher. But it's not really, no. like, like, not there. Yeah. Like, there's places where Christopher had to write connecting material. And you can spot it. You can, our lexomics uh, research can sort of s- see places where Christopher, by the way, absolutely flat out says, you know, then there wasn't any material here. Douglas Kane has put that all together in his book on constructing Arda. Um, but it's not that. It, they're all J.R.R. They're just J.R.R. over the course of 50 years. Right, right. And, and writing in deliberately in different styles. I mean, Shippies always says, like, what the, what, what earth made him sit down and he, after he's written a lot of the Silmarillion story in the story form, I think I'll need to write the Grey Annals. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I mean, and, and tells the whole story in a more in a more boring form, <laughs> like more like an outline than the actual story was. And you know, I I don't think that it was so much um, you know a plan to get that. Like I'm not saying like told you, oh, I figured out that I need to rewrite my own work this way. I, I think it was more that he needed to needed to see his ideas show up as if they were a history text that someone found in Rivendell sure. and they were a story and then his philologist brain which the, what you try to train yourself to do to be a philologist is to to look at damaged confusing or incomplete material and, and Tolkien was the best at this and figure out what the truth behind it was mm-hmm. like if you have two seemingly contradictory pieces is there a single story that could lead to both you know, this comes from linguistics reconst- linguistic reconstruction so if we have you know words in old norse for uh sh- the word for shirt is um is skirt in old norse and it's shirt in anglo-saxon well how did we end up in such a such a state of affairs mm-hmm. right and and we still have both of those in modern english and so forth so what would be the thing behind it and in in this case it's that they those words shirt and skirt both referred to the same garment which was like a long tunic yeah. and when they both came into english one from anglo-saxon and one from old norse just one got used for the top of that the top half of that piece of clothing and the other for the bottom half mm. um and and tolkien wants to do this a lot of things so like bjorn comes out of a crux in in medieval literature it's that when you, bjorn means bear and it means warrior so the question is which comes first do we call a warrior a bear because he kind of looks like a bear and he's tall you know strong and tall and everything or do we call a bear like a warrior of the forest mm-hmm. or something like that and people will argue back and forth and tolkien's answer was yeah both <laughs> You know what's even better? It's he's a warrior and he's a bear. He could be either one, and that's why it's all confused and so forth. And and like that that was kind of being like you know flip about that one. But so many times in his work on Beowulf, uh, in his uh, in his work on Gown and the Green Knight, his brilliance was seeing like I can come up with a coherent story that partially misremembered or transmitted a long way gets me to both of these pieces of evidence off a single source. Mm-hmm. So. Dark elves. There's a Snorri Sturluson says that there's light elves, there's dark elves, and there's dwarves. All the other scholars coming along, like you know, uh, Jacob Grimm says, well, obviously that the dark elves and dwarves are the same thing. And Tolkien sort of goes, mm, no, no. See, I had this idea that maybe first of all. The light elves, dark elves thing are what elves call each other. But also, maybe there's this one elf who likes to only come out at night, and he hangs out with dwarves, and he dresses in black armor. Ah, there you go. You know? yeah. <laughs> and so then you can, you know, you can imagine that, or you can imagine that from the way the Rohirrim think of the Lady of the Golden Wood, and they're scared of her, and she weaves her webs, but she's beautiful. This is sort of like how the Anglo-Saxons didn't, they were afraid of elves. They, uh, Tolkien thought, now this has been, like some of the scholarships change on this, but the whole 
elf shot thing was like when you um, when you had a sudden stitch or a sudden pain or something like that, you'd been shot by by elves. Uh, but yet they also the Anglo Saxons named their children things like Alfred, which means uh, elf council, right. or Alfgifu, gift of the elves. That kind of ambivalent, and and Tolkien has an explanation, right? Like it's really dangerous to go to Lothlorien if you're immortal, but also beautiful, you know. So there's um, there's a few of those things. A couple times you've mentioned um, someone named Tom Shippy, um, and I was wondering if you could. Um, I, I, of course, I, I know who he is, and and um, <laughs> uh, but but I was wondering if you could could tell us a little bit more about Tom and and, and sort of. I know you, you actually, um, you are part of the Tolkien Studies Journal, right? Um, and yes. you're, you're an editor there, and, and was, was Tom involved with that? Um, well, Tom was on our advisory board for years, but he wasn't directly involved uh, with Tolkien Studies. Uh, Tolkien Studies came about uh, because Doug Anderson and I, uh, Doug Anderson did the Annotated Hobbit, among other things. Uh, he and I were having a phone conversation in 2001, and he said something to the effect like, you know, well, we have these uh, journals, Malorn, which is the journal of the Tolkien Society mm -hmm. in England, and Mythlore, which is sort of American and focused on not just Tolkien, but um, other, uh, you know, fantasy writers. Uh, he said, but I've always thought that we just needed a journal, like, of Tolkien studies that was focused on him and wasn't, um, you know, and, and was academic and, and you know, its own thing. And I said, well, we should, we should found that. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, we should talk to my friend Verlin Flieger. And so the three of us uh, started working on it. We solicited articles from, from Tom Shippey. He had the, first, the very first article. Um, Tom is like the dean of Tolkien scholars, and he wrote, I'll, I'll tell you about him in a sec, so I'll tell you the Tolkien study stuff. Um, we had this journal, but we had no publisher, and we tried a number of publishers, and they were like, oh, well, I can't see it. We have you know, an academic journal on Tolkien or whatever. And then I was at the International Society of Anglo-Saxonists Conference in 2003, and I was talking to a guy named uh, Patrick Connor, who's a professor at West Virginia University, and he had just taken over the press there. And he said, you know, one of the weird things I've discovered since I took over this press is that the only thing that's profitable are journals. We don't make any money on academic books. We break even, but the journals actually do okay. I'm like, well, are you going to publish more journals then? He goes, yeah, I would like to. I wouldn't know. Uh, you know, I have to I have to put one together. I'm like, would you like to publish one on J.R.R. Tolkien? <laughs> he's like, ooh, I, th I think that could probably be pretty successful. And then, and this tells you like what era this was, I pulled the CD out of my bag that I had done the journal on, oh. that we were trying to self-publish it or whatever, and handed it to him and said, here's the first volume. And so that that was great. That worked out really well. Wow. Um, and then after uh, after a number of years, uh, over 10 years, uh, Doug uh, moved on to other projects, and that's when David Bratman uh, came on as the, the third editor. We always, we've set it up as to have the, the three-headed monster, um, <sighs> because that way there's always a way for, you know, two to outvote one, but not so, you know... Four, you can have ties. So. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that Tom Shippey, who you'd asked about, um, Tom is the the dean of all Tolkien scholars. Um, his book, The Road to Middle Earth, was, uh, you know, it's the book that, that that I wished I'd written, and I was planning on writing. Like, so I really should hate Tom Shippey. <laughs> um, I had when I was in grad school, and I was starting to learn Old English, and I was realizing that I was seeing all this in Tolkien, and. Now, of course, people have been seeing this in Tolkien for since the year I was born, really, but um, or longer. But I still, you have this sense, like, oh my gosh, I'm the first person to realize that West Uhal means be you well in Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. Oh, I've got to write a book that explains all this stuff. And then I read The Road to Middle Earth, and I'm like, you bastard, you wrote the book that I want to write. And then I was doing research for another, uh, uh, so my, my dissertation research 
Uh, part of it was on the wisdom poems in Anglo-Saxon. And so I go and, you know, doing the bibliography search that you always have to do, and the pick thing pops up, Poems of Wisdom and Learning in Middle-Earth by Tom Shippey. <laughs> <laughs> so then I'm co-writing an author, an article with one of my students um, on Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea yeah. books. And, um, you know, we're looking for articles, and there's one Tom Shippey in The Magical Wizards of Earthsea and how they perform magic. And I'm like, damn it. So I really wanted to dislike the guy. <laughs> And then I met him for the first time, and I, I had a question. He gave a paper, and I asked him something, and we started chatting and chatting. And he's like, well, we have to finish this over beers. And uh, chatting three hours later, and I realized Tom Shippey's like the greatest guy ever. And then I just, I've, I've worked, I worked well with him. He and I think the same way about a lot of things. But he's, you know, he's the guy who got it started as serious uh, Tolkien scholarship of figuring out a way to read Tolkien. And he said, you know, you need to, you need to understand him as a philologist because he's making jokes that are language based. Mm -hmm. Like all the names of the Kings of Rohan are just words for King. So like, King Theoden is King King, and King Aemer is King King, and almost everybody there is just a word for king. And, in fact, everything in Rohan is just its description in Anglo-Saxon. Huh. Aedoras means the courts, Meduseld means Mead Hall, um, the, the Halifirian is the holy mountain, um, the Wold is the rolling grand wet, the rolling ground wet wang is the, the damp place. Huh. I mean, and, and, it, and he plays on that because the hobbits do that too, right? With the hill, the water, yeah. and, and, and so forth. So, so like part of reading, uh, you know, as a philologist is reading, like Tom says, is like we philologists, we share a bunch, just, just the same way that like T.S. Eliot and, and Ezra Pound, right? They knew the, the, the classics and they knew Dante inside and out. So they're making, you know, little references to them and arguments about what it means and playing off uh, words or problems in there. Well, Tolkien's doing the same thing, but he's doing it with the stuff that's at the center of like of our field. Yeah. Um, and so, and that's how Tom reads like a, like a, a philologist. And then I would say that you know the thing that uh, that other people are doing, you know, who've taken it taken it up, like like uh, James with the digital side, or or me, or um, Corey or Dimitra Femi, is that, that there's a certain kind of um, way to read Tolkien, which, you know, I like that line from Roman Jacobson, like, go really slowly. Like, you, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the Silmarillion in particular works like Norse sagas in that the tension is in the stuff that's not said. It's in the stuff that's, it, it's in the fact that, you know, you, this person represents this family and this person represents this family and they both know what the stakes are, but then the actual words they exchange are pretty trivial. Mm -hmm. And you don't get like a deep, like psych, the psychological insight isn't the author coming out and telling you, you know, and, and Turin was conflicted because he felt that his, uh, you know, Thingol hadn't really done this, but he was also grateful to Thingol, but he never felt that he fit in very well as uh, you know no it's instead like his hands tightened on his sword hilt yeah. you know or he or, or there's the the way that the story the, the storyteller or Tolkien the way he structures it right that there's a scene of uh, three times it's mentioned something about um, you know when uh, the obnoxious elf says oh do the, the women in Hislum go running around clad only in their hair mm -hmm. and then and of course chases him like that and then later on Neonor is running like that right like those layerings and the, the complexity of it 
the author never comes in and says, and then Turin thought of what he'd said to Soames. You have to put it all together right. as a reader to get all of that stuff. Or that, you know, or that the that the ring of Barahir that Aragorn's going to wed Arwen with is like actually that ring, mm -hmm. you know, or that, or what Aragorn's really asking of uh, Elrond, or even things that you can only now figure out that Tolkien didn't really put in the book, like that, you know, he then, that he then retcons it, right, that Fionor once asked Galadriel for some locks of her hair, and she said no to Fionor. So when Gimli asks, everyone's like, oh, yeah, yes, that. <laughs> and when she says yes, oh, I can't believe she did that. <laughs> Yeah. And the point is that that's there for, you can only get that as a reader. The author's not handing that to you like they would in a 20th century novel. Though this marks the end of the episode, the road goes ever on. Until next time, join us at longwinded.one and consider giving us a review on Apple Music, Spotify, or really whichever platform you choose.